You can turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. We'll be looking there this morning. Um, you might be asking yourself, why are we turning to Genesis chapter 3? And I promise, hopefully, that will become clear. I once heard it said that every Sunday for the believer, every Sunday for the church should be both Christmas and Easter. <laughs> every Sunday for the believer, every Sunday for the church should be Christmas and a celebration of Christmas and Easter. It's a time that we proclaim not only the birth of our Lord, but his death, burial, and resurrection. This is our faith. This is what we just confessed in the Apostles' Creed. This is what we believe about the gospel. This is what we believe about scripture. And I think it can be easy for us uh, when we see these things to kind of separate and isolate them. You know, we, we, we have Christmas and we have Easter and we kind of isolate these events in our minds. And we think of them as only these specific things that we think about on these specific days. And we're tempted to think of the birth of Christ as kind of this unique thing, right? We only think about it these couple weeks of the year. And so each time we read about the birth accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the Gospels, and whether we realize it or not, I think if we're not careful, we stop thinking about the incarnation for the rest of the year. We kind of seclude it to these couple weeks, and we stop thinking about it the rest of the year. This idea that God took on flesh, that he assumed our nature. And if we're really not careful, not only will we isolate it in our calendar year, but we'll start to isolate it in our the Bible. We'll start to put it in this specific place and not think about it any other time that we read God's Word. And so we kind of simplify it. We say the Old Testament was about Israel, the, the Gospels, they've got Christmas and Easter covered, right? They talk about Jesus' birth, they talk about the resurrection, and then the rest of the Bible is just kind of how to live a good life, and it doesn't really have anything to do with these things. But in fact, hopefully what we'll see today is that the incarnation, the sufferings, and the glory of Christ is not just a New Testament thing. It's not just a Gospels thing, but it's predicted, it's promised, and it's shadowed forth in the Old Testament Scriptures. And that actually all of Scripture, Old and New Testament, is declaring and proclaiming the need for the incarnation, the promise of the Christ, the Savior of sinners. And the first of these promises comes in the book of Genesis. In the third chapter of the Bible, in Genesis 3.15, we read about what we call the serpent-crushing seed of the woman. The serpent-crushing seed of the woman. And so what we're going to see today, Lord willing, is that not only is the first promise of Christ's birth all the way at the beginning of the Scriptures in the book of Genesis and how the Old Testament is pointing forward to the coming of this one. But we're going to see how this one that is born of a woman is also very and truly God and has come to conquer our greatest enemies and win salvation for His people. So that's what we're going to see today. So I'm going to read um, a passage of Scripture. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to look at God's Word. So in the first couple of verses of Genesis 3, we read about the serpent tempting Eve. He tempts her to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God said not to eat from. 
and we see that she falls for this temptation. She sins, and she tempts Adam, and he sins, and we see that they find out that they realize that they are naked and exposed before God. And so we'll pick up in verse 8 of Genesis chapter 3, and we'll go to verse 15. This is the word of the Lord. And when they, that is Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And then we're going to see God pronounce a curse upon the serpent. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you for who you are. Lord, we thank you for your mercy and grace to us this morning that we get to gather together to worship you in spirit and in truth, to sing your praises, to sing about the coming of Christ, to hear your word proclaimed. And we pray this morning that you would help us to see the glory of the incarnation, the hope that we have in Christ alone. And that this morning, as we look at all of the scriptures and see how they point to you, your coming, your death, your resurrection, that we would, found, we would find our hope in Christ alone this morning, that we would find our hope and salvation in the person and work of Christ, the second Adam from above, that we would find hope in him alone. We need your help by your spirit to do this this morning. We need your um, strength, and so we pray that you would give us strength this morning that we might see Christ more clearly and worship him for who he is. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as I said, you might say, Kindle, this is kind of an odd Christmas passage, okay? And that's what I want you to feel, okay? So I want you to feel that. I want you to feel that this doesn't... Why are we here? Why are we at the beginning of the Bible this doesn't sound very Christmassy. It's not very appropriate for this day, but I'm going to argue that this is, in fact, the most Christmassy verse that we could go to this morning, and I hope that we will see why as we look at this. So we're going to look at three things this morning. First, we're going to look at the first promise of the gospel. The first promise of the gospel found in Genesis 3.15, the first promise of the good news. Secondly, we're going to look at the incarnation of the Son, and then finally, we're going to look at the woman's conquering seed, the woman's conquering seed. So first, we're going to look at the first promise of the gospel. So in the first three chapters of Genesis, we see these kind of three main things, and it helps me to remember of it, to think of it like this. We see man in creation in the first chapter. In the second chapter of Genesis, we see man in covenant. 
And then in chapter 3, we see man in curse. And so we see at the very beginning of the Scriptures that everything has been made by the sovereign Lord of the universe. We see in Genesis chapter 1 that God, the King, the Creator of the world, has made everything. By His Word alone, He speaks into existence that which did not exist. And we find in the book of Genesis chapter 1 that the pinnacle of God's creation is Humanity is mankind made in the image of God, made to reflect his glory with the law of God written on Adam's heart. He had the ability to keep God's law and obey his commands. But we say this a lot at this church, man was not yet at his final state. God created Adam and Eve very good. He created them in his image, but man was not yet at his final goal. He was not yet perfect. He was not yet glorified. He was what we call mutable. He hadn't reached this eternal life that God had held out for him, pictured in the Sabbath. And so the question is, in the scripture, it's kind of baked in there, how is man going to get to this final end, this everlasting life, this life where there will be no chance of sinning? How is God going to get man to this final end, this state of glorification, eternal, unchanging, everlasting life? How is this going to happen? And that brings us to chapter 2 of the book of Genesis, where we see man in covenant man in covenant, that the way that God is going to do this is by condescending and covenanting with Adam and bringing him to that final state by means of the covenant of works. That in Genesis chapter 2, God enters into covenant with Adam. He says, if you work, if you obey me, I will give you eternal life. I will give you everlasting glory. And that Adam, as the representative of all mankind, he was supposed to obey God. He was supposed to fulfill his commandments perfectly, perpetually, personally. He was to work. He was to protect this garden of this garden temple from intruders. And if he did what God said, God would bless him. He would give him this eternal life that he had earned. But we see in Genesis chapter 2 as well that there is a, there's a sanction, there's a Um, what's another way to say it, a curse associated with this covenant, that if Adam does not do what God commands, that he will be punished with death and curse. That just like this everlasting life that was promised to Adam was symbolized by the tree of life, in a similar way, the tree of the knowledge of evil, good and evil, represented this sort of probation that Adam was under, that if he obeyed God, he would get this eternal life, he would earn it, But if he did not, as God says in Genesis chapter 2, dying, you will surely die. So we see the blessings associated with obeying God, the curses associated with disobeying God. Adam was to work, he was to obey God, and if he did, God would give him eternal Sabbath rest. And so we come to Genesis chapter 3 where we see man in in curse because it doesn't take long for Adam and Eve to disobey God. We see in Genesis chapter 3 that Adam fails. He fails his task. This divine task that was given to him by God, he fails. He disobeys God. He does not cast out the serpent. He breaks this covenant of works. And we see that Satan, using the subtlety of the serpent, tempts Eve. She tempts Adam. 
And from there, they eat of the tree that they were commanded not to eat. Adam takes and eats, and he brings death and destruction on all humanity. And this is what we call the fall into sin. It's this big black line in human history where before Adam and Eve were perfect in righteousness, knowledge, and holiness. They didn't have any sin, and yet they chose to disobey God. And so there's this giant black line in human history, and the fall into sin is what we call this. That why is there death in our world? Why is there suffering and sin? Why are we born enemies of God? The answer is this fall into sin. We read this in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Paul says this, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And death spread to all men because all sinned. Right? This is the imputation of Adam's sin and disobedience. That all humanity is born in Adam, born in sin, their very nature corrupted. This is the effects of this fall into sin. So within the first three books, the first three chapters of the Bible, we see that this glorious creation that God has made very good is now cursed, fallen, and broken. And yet we see that it does not take long for our Lord to show that he is not only a God of justice, but a God of mercy and grace and hope. And we read in Genesis 3.15 about this hope. And it comes within the context of a curse, a very interesting thing to think about, that before man and woman are cursed, as if you keep reading Genesis chapter 3, you'll see that before man is cursed and ultimately driven from this garden paradise, God first pronounces a curse upon the serpent. He first pronounces a curse upon the serpent, upon Satan, that pictures his final destruction and end. And that within this curse of judgment is actually the promise of salvation for Adam, for Eve, and for all of God's people. And this promise comes in the serpent-crushing seed of the woman. And we read this in Genesis 3.15, that this seed will bruise the head of the serpent, and the serpent will bruise the heel of this one, this seed. And so even though it's kind of shadowy, even though you might be saying, Kindle, what are you talking about? This, I, don't, I don't see this here. We see three very important things in this verse. In the very early part of Scripture, we see three important things. We see that the woman will conceive. The woman will conceive. That one is going to come from woman that is going to do everything that Adam failed to do. The offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman. The second thing we see is that this one, this seed of the woman, is going to suffer. This one that's going to come from the seed of the woman is going to suffer. We read in Genesis 3.15 that he will have his heel bruised. That he will suffer a mortal wound at the hand of this serpent. But we also see thirdly that it is by this bruising that the head of the serpent will be crushed. That the head of the serpent will be crushed. That the works of the devil will be destroyed. 
And this is the first revelation of God's promise of salvation in what we call the covenant of grace. Not the covenant of works, the covenant of grace where God does not say work to enter or earn eternal life, but I'm going to give it by my grace. Not to be earned by Adam or Eve or you or I, but received as a gift. This is the first promise of the gospel. And so we see that this is God's remedy to Adam's sin. Adam sinned. He disobeyed God and he cast all of humanity into sin and darkness. But God has a remedy for Adam's sin. And the rest of the Bible, the rest of the scriptures are the unfolding of this plan of God's redemption for his people, this gospel promise. How is God going to accomplish what he set out for man in the beginning? How is God going to save his people, bring many sons to glory, and bring them into eternal Sabbath rest? How is God going to do this? And the answer is, it's not going to be through the first Adam, he failed. It's going to be through the second and last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that brings us to our second point this morning, the incarnation of the Son. The incarnation of the Son. That as we just said, the whole rest of the Old Testament is following this line, this seed of the woman, this offspring that would come. All you have to do is turn a couple pages in the book of Genesis to Genesis chapter 12, where we read of a man named Abraham. He is promised that a seed or an offspring is going to come from him that is going to bless not just the people of Israel, but all the nations. This is all the way back in Genesis 3.15. And so you follow Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You follow the people in, the, in Israel, in um, the land of Egypt where they're under slavery and bondage. We find that one is going to be born, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And if you go later in the book of the Old Testament, you see in 2 Samuel chapter 7, there's going to be the promise of a king from David's line that's going to establish the eternal kingdom of God. And so it's this great unfolding of this promise of the seed of the woman is going to be also from Abraham, also from the tribe of Judah, also from David's line, this seed of the woman that is going to destroy the works of the devil. And so when we come to the New Testament, when we come to the Gospels, we see the recording of the birth of Christ when the apostles, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they record the birth of Christ, they don't isolate or separate the birth of Christ from the Old Testament. In fact, they interpret, they understand what's going on in the birth of Christ as the fulfillment of what was promised in the Old Testament. They're not unhitching the Old Testament and the New Testament they are actually using the Old Testament to understand what was happening in this work of God in the incarnation. They're saying, this that happened, this that was promised by the prophets in the Old Testament is happening in the birth of Christ. And all you have to do is read the first couple chapters of Matthew. You should turn there with me if you um, have your Bibles with you. Matthew chapter 1. I go here a lot But I think it's so important that we see this. Matthew labors to show us that 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 was promised in the Old Testament has come to fulfillment in Christ. And the first verse in the New Testament reads like this. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Matthew says this. 
the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Why does Matthew begin his gospel this way? It's to show us that this one has come. The one promised from Abraham, the one promised from David's line, this one that was going to be born of Mary is this one, this offspring, this seed of the woman, all the way back from Genesis 3.15 that Mary is the woman. (laughs) She's the one that's going to give birth to the offspring that crushes the head of the serpent. The woman will conceive miraculously by the Holy Spirit and bear a son, and he is going to do everything the first Adam failed to do. That this one who was born of a virgin is also called in Matthew's gospel, Emmanuel, which means God with us. That as John will say in his gospel, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The son of God assuming our nature, body and soul. And his name will be called Jesus. And Matthew tells us why in verse 21. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That this one from a woman is coming to bring salvation and redemption to God's people. To live and die for them perfectly. To defeat Satan and his power over God's people. To crush the head of the serpent and destroy the works of the devil. This is the reason Christ came. And if that isn't explicit enough... If you go to John's first epistle in John in 1 John chapter 3 verse 8, John tells us the reason that Christ came and he says this, the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. <laughs> it sounds a lot like Genesis 3:15. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, the serpent crushing seed of the woman, that in the incarnation, the Son of God, the second person of the triune God, came to save us from our sins, to secure perfect righteousness and obedience to God's law. And this is really, at the heart of it, our twofold problem, right? This is why Christ came. This is why we need the incarnation. This is why we need a Savior, Because not only do you and I not have perfect obedience before God, we have not obeyed God's law personally, perfectly, and perpetually. We do not have perfect righteousness. That's our first problem. But our second problem is this. We're sinners. We have a load of sin to answer for before a holy God. And so when we're talking about this power that Satan has over God's people, this is really what we're talking about. And this is sort of the one place where Satan and the devil don't have to lie because these things are true. And the book of Zechariah chapter 3 kind of pictures this very well, that not only do you and I not have clean garments with which to stand before a holy God, but we also stand before him in filthy garments, So we don't have clean garments, and our garments are filthy. 
And Satan, as we find in Zechariah chapter 3, he stands ready to accuse God's people. And he doesn't have to lie. He's the father of lies, but here he doesn't have to lie because we are sinful. We are standing before a holy God with filthy rags. We are fallen in Adam. We are worthy of God's wrath and curse. But we see that in the mercy of God, he says and proclaims this in the book of Zechariah. Remove their filthy garments. Behold, I have taken away your iniquity, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. That this one who is holy and perfect and righteous is also merciful, and he will not only remove our filthy garments from us, but he will clothe us in pure white vestments. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is how does this connect it to the incarnation? How is this possible? How can God take away our sin and guilt and not become an unjust judge? How is this power of Satan over God's people defeated? And this brings us to our third and final point this morning, the woman's conquering seed. The woman's conquering seed. That as we go through the Gospels, as we go through the accounts of Jesus' life, we see that at the end of the Gospels, the way that the serpent is defeated is actually by suffering, crucifixion, and the death of the perfect Son of God. That the way that Satan and his power over God's people is defeated is actually by the bruising of the heel, the mortal wound of the seed of the woman. And it is actually by undergoing the judgment that our sin deserved by the perfect Son of God that the sin and death that we deserved is defeated. That this seed of the woman that will come and conquer, as we sang about this morning, I don't know if you picked up that on Hark the Herald Angels Sing, he conquers sin and death not by preserving his life, but by laying it down of his own accord. He defeats Satan not by preserving his life, but by his sacrificial death and obedience. And he does everything that the first Adam failed to do. That Christ, by his substitutionary death, he not only removes our sin from us, our filthy garments, but by his perfect obedience as the last Adam, he clothes us in his perfect righteousness when we are united to him by faith. The Christ conquers by crucifixion, by suffering and dying for sinners like you and I. And so as we walk away from this passage this morning and we contemplate and think about what this means for our life, the first thing that comes to the forefront or should come to the forefront is we need Christ. We need Christ. We need the seed of the woman. We need the second Adam from above because the scriptures are very clear. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. You are either under the covenant of works forced to obey every commandment of God perfectly under the wrath and curse of the law, or you're in the covenant of grace and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning, 
We need to be in Christ. We need to be found in Him alone. That's our only hope in life and death. We need the incarnation. We need the Son of God to take upon Himself our nature, do everything that you and I could not, not only obeying God, but suffering in our place to save and redeem us. And we read this this morning in one of my favorite verses, Galatians chapter 4. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. (laughs) Genesis 3.15. Taking upon Himself our nature. Born under the law. Taking upon Himself the duties that were due to us. Why? To redeem those who were under the law. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And as we come to the end of the Scriptures, we see that the end is better than the beginning. That as we come to the end of the Bible, we see that the beginning of the Scriptures comes to a climactic consummation at the end of all things. In the book of Revelation, we see that the seed of the woman has truly conquered. That the Lamb who was slain is also the Lion of the tribe of Judah that sits upon the throne. And that the devil, that ancient serpent, is cast out not only of heaven, but is cast into the eternal lake of fire. And we see at the end of all things that for those that are found in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are clothed in garments made white by the blood of the Lamb. That's our hope this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for the incarnation. We thank you for the grace that you've given us unworthy people that did not deserve your mercy, and yet in the fullness of time you have extended it in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so our prayer this morning is not only that we would see how all of Scripture points to your person and work, but this morning we would come to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would have faith in Him alone. And faith is receiving and resting upon Christ alone as He has offered to us in the gospel. It's not working our fingers to the bone. It's not hoping and praying that we've done enough good works at the end of the day. It is resting in the finished work of Christ and receiving what He has done for us by faith. We need your help this morning to believe these things. We pray that by the power of the Spirit, you would open up the eyes of our hearts, that we might see and understand the glory of the gospel, the serpent-crushing seed of the woman that has conquered Satan, sin and death, has done all this for us and for our salvation, and has given it to us by His grace alone. Help us to trust in this this morning and every day. And we pray that as we go from here, Lord, that you would be glorified in the praises of your people, that we would become to be found in Christ this morning. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.